EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. Here it is, and once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabalero. Week three, coming to you from the St. Elizabeth EMS Conference in Cincinnati, Ohio, from the Cincinnati Marriott, and I am here with my good friend, who needs no introduction, KG Kelly Grayson. Kelly, week show number three. Show number three. Boy, this is a long EMS conference. It seems like we've only been here a few hours. Miss week three already? He thinks he's funny. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, Kelly Grayson knows he's, he's we've been here only for a few hours. So, but we, you know, we there's you know we talked about it in the past couple shows. There's some great mm-hmm. speakers here, and we want to be able to capitalize on the information that they're sharing. Our next guest, I got to tell you, Kelly Grayson, I got to tell you, our next guest has to be my favorite guest on the show, and probably one of the hottest men in EMS. He is a sexy hunk of man flesh, I will admit. He is, and he smells good, by the he way. He smells great. Smells better than you do, actually. Does he really? Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't have him on the show, but our good friend, Chris Call, is here, and his and he did a presentation today, which was called 30 Things in 30 Minutes. Well, to keep with the show, we may do 20 things in 20 minutes, but here he is, our good friend, and when we talk about EMS1, one of the guys who brought it to fruition... Chris Call. Chris, welcome to the show. OG, the OG. Thank you, guys. Um, I'm not sure. I feel like I listen to your podcast, and everybody is your favorite guest on the show, but I will take it. I will take yeah, it for this but for moment. for you, we actually mean it. Oh, but you're my favorite guest today, yes. this week. You're my favorite guest this week. <laughs> I love it. Um, so we did 30 minutes with 30 different things, and the 30 things were the top highlights in EMS or trends or stuff that as you're driving and listening to this, you should be looking at what the research shows, reading the articles, or at least knowing that there's a debate out there that may be far from being answered. And so we could do 30 and 20 minutes. Who knows how fast this will go, but there's not a lot of banter in this. I'm just going to go through my list and color commentary from you guys. We need to banter. And now you've already wasted four minutes. Starting with, go. should everybody be called a paramedic? I mean, that's a good one. I mean, we've been talking about that for a long time. And should we call everybody a paramedic? Uh, you know, they do that in overseas. They do that in Australia. Kelly, what do you think? I don't care what you call me as long as you don't call me late for dinner. Oh, my goodness. You had to go I mean, there. I used to think that <clears throat> that the name conveyed some degree of professionalism, but I really don't anymore. I think it to the public, it doesn't matter what we're called. And the only people that, that really stress about being called a, a paramedic versus an ambulance driver are people who, who are incensed at all the wrong things. Yeah, but I go back to, uh, you'd say, hey, there's a firefighter, there's a, there's a police officer, there's a medic, and the community doesn't care. They expect that we show up, we're well-knowledge, we have the right equipment, and we take care of them and love up on them. Um, 
and we can figure out what our ranks are behind the scenes. But I think some type of standardized name would be great. Did you just say love up on them? Love up on them. That's right. <laughs> we're, next, down to, we're down to 17 things. And and, next thing. <laughs> All right, go. Should we have degrees mandated? Yes. Really? You're just going to say yes? Where's, where's yes. your supporting information for that? Does a degree convey better health care, better skills, more competent care? No. I think you can be a, a very competent, even a stellar paramedic without a degree. However, if we're going to take our place at the table uh, among all the big healthcare kids, we need a degree. Um, it makes you a more knowledgeable, well-rounded paramedic with a better BS filter, a better critical thinker if you have some knowledge outside of EMS. You know, I think one of the things that we would look at is I don't know that we need a degree in EMS. If we're going to get a degree, maybe we should get a degree in communication or leadership or management. But I don't know that an EMS degree really makes a difference in what we're doing for care. And I don't know what you're going to teach me at the college level when it comes to care of my patient. But I do need to know leadership. I do need to know management. I do need to know communication. What, where are the degree programs of an associate's degree in EMS with an operations focus? So I know how to run an organization or I know how to run a clinical department. Those are the things I think we need. Yes, and I actually would agree with you that I'm not saying that we should have a degree in EMS. We should have a degree as part of EMS, meaning, hey, there's, there's people who have an art history degree and graphics designers who are paramedics, and guess what they bring? They bring a new creative eye to a lot of the stuff that we do. And you add a business degree or whatever that degree is, I think it just adds a more well-rounded clinician. The next one that we've all talked about before, <laughs> are there alternative modes of transportation? Is Uber and Lyft going to take over the ambulance service? I don't know that Uber and Lyft are going to take over the ambulance service, but I think that we're going to be able to augment with Uber and Lyft. Certainly in the community paramedicine realm, we are able to use these two services as alternative transport. If I'm able to get somebody to an urgent care center and I've got a contract with Uber or Lyft, I think that's going to be beneficial. Do we see the days where Uber and Lyft are going to take over emergency medical services? I don't think so, and, and I wouldn't suppose yeah. we would see that. But it's good for an alternative transportation mode. Exactly. As we move from a fee for uh, transport to a fee for service model ever so slowly, I don't think Uber and Lyft should be a threat to EMS. I think they're a, a resource we can mine. The next one is active shooter, and it's not about the active shooter, although I do think, and I was very surprised, happily surprised here, how much training is going into thinking differently. My question for you guys is, what is scene safety when it comes now to the active shooter? You know, when we think about scene safety, I mean, I think that we need the opportunity to get in closer to those patients and take care of them faster. So I think that if our peers, if our policemen, if our police peers can clear the scene, I think we need to be able to get into that warm zone and be ready and be vigilant. You know, the thing about scene safety is that EMS, we're good about making sure the scene is safe. We say it, BSI scene safe. We're not good at maintaining scene safety. And that's what I think we need to work on. Yeah, it's, it's a constantly evolving. It's a continuum of safety. There is no scene that is truly safe. But some scenes are safer than others. And one of the big disservices we do to new EMTs is we teach them that it's a static thing. Determine scene safety and then you're done. Uh, we need to change our focus in that regard and, and realize that scene safety and, and, as Chris says, keep your head on a swivel 
um, be vigilant throughout the call, uh, and we can mitigate a lot of risk that way, even in the warm zone. Yeah, I think the days of being two blocks away and super safe yeah. is inappropriate. If they can contain the threat and you can get in, get those people out, which is my next one about stopping the bleed and the big push on tourniquets. Thoughts? I think it's time. I mean, we oh, yeah. used to, you know, we, we did away with them. You know, we were using them back in the old days before electricity, you know, just in the days of the mass pants. And we got mm -hmm. rid of the mass pants, which I don't think we needed. Uh, but we took away the tourniquets. But now we, we've, we've, we've no, we know the error of our ways. And now the research, which we needed, is telling us that this is really saving the limb. It's really kind of helping that person. I think we should have them on the trucks. And I think we should train all our people. And this is probably one of the things you could even keep in your car if you need to mm -hmm. shut that person up who won't stop talking. And let's go along the same lines. Uh, airway. Are you guys familiar with the new airway trials? There's the part trial and then the airways two trial. Thoughts. Is intubation bad? Is it airway good? Is it BLS before ALS? I think airway management is a continuum of care and you need to be, able, be capable at the paramedic level of doing everything along that continuum. Uh, are superglottic airways superior to endotracheal intubation? No, I don't think so. I think superglottic airways are superior to poorly performed endotracheal intubation, and that is the most common type pre-hospitally. We need to accept this fact. We have a long way to go to attain competency profession-wide at airway management. Stop thumping our chest and realize that we've got more work to do. Um, otherwise, we're going to have superglottic airways and nothing else. Yes, I think that's the take-home that I was excited about is that for once we realistically said and shared how poor our intubation first attempts were. And then because of that, you can educate, train, build programs around that. Large vessel occlusion, we've been talking about this now for the last couple of years. It's almost like the STEMI of the brain. So 87% of stroke patients have a blocked area in their brain. And then 85% of those go unrecognized. The idea of bypassing ED straight to the CT and then pulling that clot out, stroke alert, stroke alert, stroke alert. Questions? One of the things that we did successfully was we showed that we can make a difference bypassing the ER and going to the cath lab. I think what we have to do is continue that process as we bypass the ER and now get to the CAT scan. Are we going to find it? I got to tell you, there's probably going to be the same amount of missed, uh, you know, uh, activations as there is in the cath lab. But I would rather miss that act. I would rather mm -hmm. miss that call and, you know, make sure that we're in the right place than just bypass or just taking them to the ER and wasting that time. Yeah, better, um, better over triage than under triage. I think there's going to lead eventually to a new tier of stroke center. You know, once upon a time, it was, does your facility have a CAT scan? Uh, now, it's, does your facility have a CAT scan and in-house neurology? Uh, and now, we're, we're going to be asking, does your facility have CAT scan or in-house neurology and interventional radiology mm -hmm. to handle those LVO strokes? Along with, you, got the, you activate the cath lab for heart attack. You also do the stroke alerts. What about sepsis alert? What are you guys hearing out there? You know, sepsis, I think, is one of those things that we don't do a good enough job with. We just don't consider sepsis when we have the presentation. We try to think about the chief complaint. We try to, you know, treat the chief complaint. But are we really getting into the pathophysiology of what's going on? The answer is no. Sepsis is very, very common. We miss it a lot of times, and we have to kind of bone up on that education. Uh, I'm going to be contrarian here, and I think sepsis is a problem. I think our management, particularly in the hospitals, uh, is is somewhat lacking. Um, the government, uh, CMS, has, has pushed 
resuscitation and sepsis bundles and early goal-directed therapy uh, very heavily on dubious evidence. There's very little evidence to support early goal-directed therapy and a bunch of unrealistic requirements uh, of, of treating sepsis. If you speak to, to emergency department practitioners, they'll tell you that, that some of the things that they need them to do are, are not beneficial, possibly even harmful, and the time frames are unrealistic. Uh, and, and the data on that is, is not in keeping with, uh, with what CMS asks of us. I think the biggest thing coming out of this is, is pressers are back in a big way. And, yeah, and no more leave go, them dead. Yeah, it's no more leave the Fed, leave, leave them dead. The leave leave yeah. the Fed, keep them alive. Yeah, exactly right. ECMO. Talk to me about ECMO. Extra cash-making opportunity? Yes. Even corpses may oxygenate? Yes. Uh, ECMO would be awesome if we had it in our area. Uh, would uh, Is that going to delve into or change the treatment of some pre-hospital cardiac arrest? Do we go to ECMO-capable centers for a certain subset of our patients? Um I think that's a possibility in, in very well-designed EMS systems with great hospital support. Not in mine right now, but... Right. Or 85% of the rural population. Yeah. Uh, ECMO, if you haven't heard of that before, you should start looking at it. I think that it'll just be part of the additional continuum of care. The stats show that in those places, right, it's the same as trauma and having a level one trauma center. There isn't a level one trauma center in the entire state that I'm from. So right. it, it's all about capabilities. Well, you guys have talked about, speaking of doodads, talk to me about ultrasound. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't think ultrasound is going to have a great uh, success in the field. I know that there are people out there that really believe in it. I don't know what it does for me that changes my treatment of that patient. What it does is it wastes a little bit more time taking away from my assessment, from my treatment, from my management. Again, I can't do anything different. Can I go into the hospital and say, I think there's blood in the abdomen? What is that going to do for that patient? I think what I need to do is assess. I need to be able to start management. I need to be able to treat in route and get them to the facility as quickly as practical. This is a tool I don't think we need to have. Well, once again, you're wrong, uh, but that's a daily occurrence. So uh, I think uh, POCUS is, is, has a lot of uh, potential. Um, you, first of all, you can do a fast exam in less than five minutes. Probably but it's not changing your treatment of the patient. Uh, it can't. Uh, <clears throat> First of all, auscultation of breath sounds and, and clinical assessment of things like, say, pneumothorax uh, are notoriously unreliable at identifying pneumothorax or even tension pneumothorax. Our clinical skills in that regard are fairly deficient. Ultrasound, on the other hand, can detect pneumothorax fairly reliably and do it in, in a matter of seconds. So if you're thinking of needling somebody's chest or not needling somebody's chest, this might be the, the, the thing to tip the... Uh, tip the assessment in, in, in the patient's favor. Bottom line is, is if it can be made cost effective and give us more information of our patients in a short time frame, I think we ought to do it. And now it's getting to the point where it is cost effective. An okay. iPhone app and a, and a peripheral, you, you've got ultrasound for less than, less than $2,000. I like the needle. Rebuttal I, there, I like the needle his chest. <laughs> All right, community paramedicine. I love it. I love it. It's the wave of the future. One of the things that I'm working on now is to bring Anthem to the table to pay for home visits, and I think we're going to start to see that probably before the end of this year. Uh, community paramedicine is here to stay, and now the payers are starting to see it, and they're starting to bring the money. He's absolutely right. I'll agree with him in this regard. Community paramedicine is is gaining ground, uh, and, and it's our test bed for 
treatment without transport and, and showing that we are capable of making those decisions. Uh, and I think uh, eventually it's going to change the face of paramedicine. We're going to be in the preventative care instead of the reactive care. Exactly. Talk to me about high fidelity simulation. No, you're, you're I don't want to do that. Back to, I don't want to do that. You're going back to airway or not having the ability to do that or not being able to make decisions. I think back in the day, I would put my fingers on, on the crowded and then I would look up at my preceptor mm-hmm. and they would say 80 and then or no pulse. Now, the idea or concept for me is that I have to make all these decisions. They're not even in the same room and we're starting to work through those. I think high fidelity simulation has value. Uh, the question is, can we do it cost effectively? And that's the that's the sticking point for most places. Can you afford a hundred thousand dollar mannequin and, and set up in a, a mobile sim lab? Many agencies can't, but th- there's ways around that as well. Partnerships, consortiums to do that, roving sim labs. In an era where we're increasingly having problems getting quality clinical time and clinical exposure, the only thing that we have to to bridge that gap is high fidelity simulation. Are we making headway with mental wellness in we, EMS? Yep. We kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Kelly, and I, I think there is starting to be this, this awareness that's coming on. I don't know that we're doing a lot about it, but I think that we are starting to become aware and we're starting to develop the, you know, the uh, wherewithal of how we're supposed to deal with this. One of the biggest problems here is that we don't allow our leaders to actually get to know the, the workforce very well. We don't give them the tools that they need to be successful. We don't give them the tools to, to take care of the most precious resource, which is the human resource. And we need to be able to make sure that part of their responsibility is that wellness and resilience and mental health is the prime focus of those leaders. I, I think that, that we have made a lot of progress and that it is no longer uh, – as much of a stigma as it yes, used to be. You're, I agree. People who 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 can open up and, and share the the their demons uh, are not looked at as broken or lesser. So uh, to the relatable. Much, yes, much more relatable. And we're yeah. realizing that that it's it's a far more uh, pervasive problem than we first uh, than we first believed. And uh, hopefully, it'll continue along that path, and we can we can see some real change treatment wise and prevention wise. All right, Kelly, I'm going to start with you on this one. Okay. And Chris, fatigue. A real thing in EMS? Oh, hell yes. Yes, it is a major problem in EMS, and it needs to, it, it, agencies need to start addressing this uh, before uh, our governmental regulations start addressing it for us. I think that, uh, I actually think that we're our own worst as employees as well. So it's from the EMS. I think that there are a lot of people who can say, oh, it's the man who's trying to make everybody, but we also want to have. 48 hours on and all these days off for my third job, fourth job, or just to go play out in the mountains. I think that's a big point because one of the things that we have to remember is that we don't pay our workforce very well. And they need to work multiple shifts to make those ends meet. We're making them tired because we're not giving them a livable wage. We've got to change that component so they can Mm -hmm. live on what we pay them and they don't have to worry about picking up two or three extra shifts a pay period. Yeah, I I think it should... I'm not going to go to the extent of saying that a 24-hour shift should go away or a 48-hour shift should go away. I think they should be rare. Um, but there are agencies that have a low enough run volume uh, and, and staffing issues uh, bad enough that, that a 48-hour shift is probably uh, probably the only thing that's going to work for them. You can't do 12s uh, when your run volume is, is so low. Um, so tied to UHU, there needs to be some fatigue mitigation policies tied to how – 
how much these people actually work during a shift. When we talk about the 2018 EMS trend report, and if you haven't seen it, you need to read it, you need to look through it, you need to talk about it. But the two main issues, I'm going to combine them right now, recruitment and retention. I think one of the things that we need to stop doing is looking for the golden employee. We're looking for that best employee when it comes to recruitment. And I think this goes to retention as well if we talk about it. Instead of looking for that special, that great, that outstanding employee, we need to hire employees and then we need to invest into our workforce and make them into great employees. This is going to increase retention. This is going to increase engagement, satisfaction, and then watch what that does to your productivity. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's no EMS. There's no shortage in EMS. There's no paramedic shortage. There's no EMT shortage. What there is is a shortage of paramedics and EMTs who are willing to work under crappy conditions for chump change. Hmm. That's it, plain and simple. We have a total resource misallocation in EMS. We put the most trained providers in the area where the highest training makes little difference, and in the rural areas where the highest training could potentially be beneficial, where ALS providers could really shine, um, those rural areas are left with EMRs and EMTs. We, we, we have them all stuck in the wrong places. Do away with the ALS intercept, replace it with the BLS intercept, and start paying and treating people right, and your, your recruitment and retention problem goes away. Chris, talk to me about tactical medicine. My premise is that it's not actually about SWAT medics, those kind of things. It's about bringing those core basic knowledges, knowledge set to everyday street ambulances that may or may not know what the next call is going to be. You know, when we think about tactical medicine, it's really important because we just talked about active shooter a little bit. And, you know, an active shooter could involve, you know, it could involve those police officers as well that are part of that team. So being able to have a medic that's trained in tactical medicine, not necessarily on the team, although I do think that they have places on the teams and they should be on the team, but we should train every single paramedic, every single ENT in tactical medicine because, as you mentioned, we don't know what call is coming around the corner that we're going to need these skills. And i got to tell you, today is not like it was 10 years ago. we got to change our paradigm. It's Exactly. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a very unique skill set to give some people, uh, give our EMTs some level of tactical awareness. Better scene survey and, and uh, awareness of an evolving situation uh, so they can remain safe rather than check off a box at the beginning of a skill sheet. Um, and operations in the warm zone, it really would not take that much extra education to make people at least a little more tactically aware and able to operate in the warm zone. Do we need specially trained crack teams of, of paramedics going in and they're in the back of their diamond formation and, and taking care of people under fire? No, I don't think so. But something short of that, I think every EMT is, is attainable. Uh, that's attainable for every EMT. So the next one is the EMS Management Association started putting structure around field training officers, what that means, what's it mean to be a frontline supervisor, manager, uh, and, and an executive in EMS. Are we doing enough for succession planning and leadership in our community? I don't think we're not. I don't think we are, but I think that NEMSMA is doing a great job of setting that foundation. We've talked about it for many years that you get promoted because you know you've been there the longest. And now the EMS Management Association is really kind of stepping up to say, hey, the, these are the guidelines. These are the paradigms. These are the competencies that you need to have. Mm -hmm. Now what we got to do is figure out how do we get that training that meets those competencies. 
all too often we promote people based on clinical competence and how well their paperwork is turned out and how well their boots are shined, but they don't really have any specific leadership and management training. And that's something that we fail at. We need to get better at it. Yeah, let's go to three clinical, uh, and they, they're going to fall right into each other. They're all medications. Mm -hmm. TXA, your thoughts on TXA? Uh, Lots of hype, very little evidence that it's beneficial. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot is, you know, where is the evidence and the work that we do? We need to be able to start seeing this evidence-based medicine that's telling us that what we're carrying is making a difference. I agree with Kelly. Okay, then what about ketamine? I love ketamine. I think it's um, one of those yeah. things that, you know, it's great for knocking down a horse. I love so, it. I even give it to my patients sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those drugs I think that was misunderstood. I think it was one of the drugs that were uh, that we are not utilizing effectively. I think there's a lot of different uh, chief complaints that we could use it on. I think it needs to be part of our toolbox. Yeah. Here we have a drug that is a bronchodilator mm -hmm. that is useful yep. for... for um, sedating pediatric patients who are having asthma. It has a beneficial effect there. It's a drug that causes significant analgesia uh, and significant sedation without significantly altering their hemodynamics of the respiratory yeah, that's drive. The Why would part. we not use this? And it's not habit-forming. It's not an addictive drug. I think ketamine needs to take a big place in our pre-hospital armamentarium uh, and and be a, a more of an adjunct uh to opiates than, than it currently is. And the third one of the medication trio that I've been seeing a lot more about is TXA, ketamine, epi. Epi's still useful. I just don't know that it's useful in cardiac arrest. Right. Specifically, yeah. the 1 to 1,000 every three to five minutes cardiac arrest, mm -hmm. uh, the data showed that it creates a lot more turnips uh, along with creating a lot more ROSC. Uh, so you temporarily resuscitate a corpse more with epinephrine, uh, and more corpses will get discharged from the hospital um, and require lifetime care thereafter. Otherwise, for creating a, for resuscitating a patient who can live a functional life independently after discharge of the hospital, not proven. So the last one, I don't know if we had all 30, but we had almost all 30, was on helicopter safety. And the reason I think this is a big one for me is that it haunts me because I don't think that anybody who's ever been injured or involved in a helicopter crash woke up that day saying, I'm going to be less safe today. And so that whole culture of safety, and I just want to bring it back a little bit bigger to ambulance driving, mm -hmm. back lifting, unsafe, unsafe scenes. I think it's a human thing of this culture of safety. And so what haunts me about culture of safety is how do we stay vigilant every day, every time? I got to tell you, I mean, and that's your wheelhouse. When we think about helicopter safety, one of the things that we've got to think about is not launching that helicopter unless we really need them. And I think that this has been great. We've talked about all these things that everybody is talking about in EMS, and we want to know what your thoughts are. But number 30 is what's on your list. So Chris Call, I have one for you, Chris Sabalero or Kelly Grayson. Why do you make me choose? It's like I should be the first on every list. Yes. That's crazy. Well, <laughs> Kelly, what's on your list since he's not going to answer that question? Uh, my, my focus mainly is, is EMS education. I think that we do a poor job of it, even though curricula and, and educational guidelines have broadened so much, but the rubber still has not met the road. But hey, that's what I think. We'd like to hear what the rest of you think. So email us your thoughts, concerns, comments, questions. What's on your list? Listening at home. 
Email us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero and the OG of EMS podcasters and, and social media, Chris Call. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>